But again, here we're really lucky because we do have access to culture cordyceps that the nutrient blueprint, when you look at, you know, HPLC and things like that, the nutrient blueprint is is very similar, all albeit at, a, you know, the peaks are at lower levels. So you're getting the same physiological function, but you might have to take more. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I want to share something with you that I read. It's from Ira Glass, the voice and the genius behind the popular NPR radio show, This American Life. I think this applies as well to those of us who learn and practice medicine. Here's what Ira says. Nobody tells this to people who are beginners, and I really wish someone had told this to me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's this gap. For the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're doing isn't so good. It's not that great. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, it's still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. And a lot of people never get past that phase. They quit. Everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through years where they had really good taste and they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as what they wanted it to be. They knew it fell short. Everybody goes through that. And if you're just starting out, or if you're still in this phase, you gotta know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on deadline so that every week or month, you know you're going to finish one story. It's only by going through a volume of work that you're going to catch up and close that gap. And the work you make will be as good as your ambitions. I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've met. It takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while. You just have to fight your way through that. The word taste here in Ira's advice to us, I take it to mean we have a sense of both quality and discernment, that there's something that we can't quite describe. It's less of a noun, more like a verb. It's something that magnetically guides us towards something that makes sense, even if we can only point toward it with poetry, images, or metaphor. I love it that Ira talks about being bad at the beginning. That exactly sounds like the practice of medicine. We want to do good. And if you've gotten through three years of school and a few handful of years of practice, then you've got a good start. But it takes time and experience and working with that aspect of us that discerns quality and have the fortitude to realize that there's going to be a lot of getting it wrong on the way to getting it right. There is a gap, a gap between where we are, what we know, and where we can imagine being. And it takes time. We live in a world of ever-increasing speed and Instagram gratification, but doctors are slow-cooked. Ira's right. It's normal to take a while, and you have to persevere. All right, let's get into this, folks. We're diving into this conversation on the magic of mushrooms. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. 
Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Robert Hoffman, welcome to CHEOLOGICAL. Thank, Thank you for having me. I am always delighted to talk with colleagues that I've never met except over the internet. It's kind of yeah, fun. Yeah, it's kind of a new way to uh, create friendships around the world. 
I know. And it's so easy to do it like uh, exactly yeah. around the world, which is why I'm broadcasting here today from Geological International. Excellent. You know, <laughs> heart of St. Louis, Missouri. Crazy as that is. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to have study groups and colleagues all around the world and have such easy access to them. I love it. It's really amazing. Yeah, we, we are fortunate. You know, there's so many crazy things going on in our day and time. And yet at the same time, I feel like we've got these resources that we can use that other people have never had access to. Oh, yeah, to absolutely. Because they didn't absolutely. Exist. Yeah, super cool. So I'm I'm always a fan of creation stories, you know, and, and how people got started with whatever they're interested in. What brought you around to Chinese medicine? I suspect it's not something that, you know, your high school counselor said, hey, Robert, you should do Chinese no, medicine. No, very, very much uh, a very different route than that. And actually uh, – it took a long time, kind of because of, of where I grew up, actually. Um, I I got into Chinese medicine because of uh, martial arts, like like many um, Western men do, of course. But I grew up uh, in New Jersey um, and started taking karate in the early 80s, of course, being fed by Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee movies. And yeah, of course, man, that stuff was so good. And every kid I know wanted to take, you know, karate. And I was, I was a little obsessive. Um, I, I played school sports, of course, and, and surfed and things like that. But karate was, you know, a huge love. But as I got close to college, you know, I began to kind of wonder, like, what do you do with karate? Like it's, it's the late Mm. eighties in New Jersey. Um, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, none of that was even in my sphere. Um, I was really just doing karate and, and I meditated. I, I, I kind of organically just started to meditate because I was told it was something I should do. But I didn't know like where that would take me in life. So I actually backed away from it, um, went to college, studied music and business and music, yeah, and business. music and business uh, with the. In- those, those are two very <laughs> similar things right how'd that business to satisfy my parents and music to satisfy me and that worked and i ended up working in new york city all through the 90s working on records and producing and engineering and then eventually moved out to los angeles um in the mid to late 90s and that's when i kind of started to re-look at my previous martial arts life and figure out like where I wanted to go. I, I knew I needed to work out. Um, living in recording studios, working 20 hours a day was never a healthy lifestyle. Um, so I began to, yeah, Tell me so about I, it. I'd, I'd gained like 30 pounds. I mean, I was drinking a six pack of Coke a day living on, um, I used to eat these little vitamins that were bee pollen and ginseng. Um, oh yeah. Oh, I remember they were those. just awful for you. And I, I mean, I really didn't have a good lifestyle but i was making great music so it didn't really seem to matter but as i got and, and you're young you yeah, could i was get in my away 20s i'm like who cares but as i got closer to 30 i could start to see like this doesn't feel good this is not a good way to live so i started looking to different schools of martial arts uh here in los angeles and the one thing that i kept coming back to as i was kind of uh re-meeting new teachers and karate teachers and and kung fu teachers is there was a really uh kind of interesting effect that i noticed most of the karate teachers in their older years seemed to have arthritis uh they had difficult health problems 
Um, right. And they, they kind of seem to be dying earlier. I think this wasn't a scientific research test. This was just kind of my observation and study. Right. right. Exactly. It's like I did Aikido when I was younger and something I discovered about pretty much anyone who'd been in Aikido for a long time, the knees yeah. go out. Yeah. So you, they all had they knee, all surgery, knee surgery and knee problems. And I, I had come from Asian mm-hmm. Rue and a lot of these guys all had like terrible hands and terrible arthritis. But I kind of looked at the Chinese teachers and they were all living into their 90s, you know, Bagua teachers living to 110. And I was like, that that uh, just seems like a smarter move. Um, so I, I began to study Jeet Kune Do and then I moved to Hungar and finally met uh, my Tai Chi teacher. And uh, interestingly, all of my martial arts teachers later in life were all Chinese medicine practitioners. My Hungar teacher is a bone setter from Hong Kong. My Tai Chi teacher does Tui Na and acupuncture. Um, and my Xingyi and Bagua teacher is also an acupuncturist. So when I began to think about a career shift and a, and a total life change, um, it was an obvious path for me because all of my teachers, all the people I was, I was surrounding myself with were all Chinese medicine practitioners. So it was a I mean, the writing was kind of on the wall. And now living in Los Angeles in mid 2000s, I could see the path. I could see basically what was mm-hmm. available to me that I couldn't see being an 18 year old karate practitioner, you know, on the East Coast. It just suddenly there was a, a real vision to it all. Yeah. You know, it's so curious how something will get us started and we can absolutely not see where that will take us. It's it's thoroughly impossible. And it usually takes something where it just takes more time or something unfolds or we start noticing other things. Then we go, oh, I see how that path is Here, threaded Here's together. how it's supposed to work. And, and actually, there was a very a very pointed moment where I knew I needed to make the change. Um, I, again, was in the music industry. Uh, I was having a, a very comfortable, very good career. And the mm-hmm. uh, tsunami happened in Southeast Asia. And one of my teachers uh, had ties to Sri Lanka. So we went down there to do tsunami relief. And, you know, it was one of those moments in your life where it was like, well, I could give a couple hundred dollars to the Red Cross or I can actually get on the plane and, and try to make a difference. And that's what we decided to do. So when, when we were in Sri Lanka, um, we were concentrating mostly in villages, uh, that were uh, Muslim because the Tamils were concentrating on the Hindu villages and the Sri Lankan government and the relief agencies were mostly concentrating on the Buddhist villages. So the Christian and Muslim villages in our experience were the ones that were underserved. So we were spending a lot of time in those villages. And when we encountered some of the Western doctors, they didn't when they ran out of Western medicine, they had no way to treat patients. So we would roll into, uh, you know, a clinic that had been set up and they were handing out Pepsi. So if stomach ache, Pepsi, headache, Pepsi, menstrual cramps, Pepsi, whatever you had, they had Pepsi and water and that's what they were handing out. So my... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Western... Yes. Do- <laughs> I mean, this, this I mean, this is this is not a comedy no, show, folks. Not. This is... Seriously, Pepsi. Yeah. I, did they have a conventional medicine reason for no, doing it? I mean, were no. they just looking at hydration? No, they, they literally, it, they just, just had no other tools because all we got is Pepsi. They're waiting Pepsi. for the next truck to arrive with penicillin and all the other bits. You know, there there was no once they ran out of medicine, quote unquote. That was it, right? There was nothing left to do. 
So I watched, yeah, it it was frightening actually. And then I watched my teacher who was an acupuncturist and tweena and herbalist specialist, um, actually be able to treat patients. So somebody would come in with a limp and he started doing, you know, tween on their legs and, uh, his wife and he would make herbal teas from local Sri Lankan herbs. Um, he had me doing acupressure on people, you know, here, stick your fingers, you know, on this leg here. And, you know, eventually I learned like, Oh, that was GB 34 and spleen six or, you know, point combinations on the legs. And it was so in, in a sense, it was twofold is number one, I kind of got out of the, you know, somewhat selfish, self-indulgent music industry for a moment and kind of saw that there's, you know, there's this whole world that, you know, maybe I can, I don't know, lend a hand or maybe I can, I can just do something more than music. And I also got to see the power of Chinese medicine, again, with virtually nothing could affect change on a population that needed help. So when I landed back in Los Angeles after that first trip, I knew I couldn't go back to the life that I had. There, there was just no way that you could have that experience and come back to, you know, only making music. Um, so it took time to build that transition, but that was, that was really the moment. I mean, I remember walking out of the Bradley International Terminal and just being like, oh, this Los Angeles looks different to me now. And, and there was no way back. Wow. So Transformative it really experience. was, absolutely. Lucky you. Yeah, yeah, very. You know, lucky you for saying, I could give some money, but I'm not. I'm going to go over there myself. And then the world opens this up to you. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. Fantastic. The thing that I am looking forward to having a conversation with you about today is medicinal mushrooms, which is one as just one tiny aspect of our medicine. And the thing about medicinal mushrooms these days is that they're like super popular all over the place. You've got everyone from Tim Ferriss selling changa in coffee to, well, I had a guy on the podcast here a little over a year ago who has been growing medicinal mushrooms since I think the late yeah, 80s. Steve, I heard that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's... Uh, you know, and then of course, Linger Rishi has been used in Chinese medicine for, you know, a long, long time. And we've got all these new ones coming online now, Changa and Lion's Mane and all this stuff. So I'm looking forward to digging yeah, into sure. this again. What took you into the medicinal <laughs> mushroom realm? How did you, what, what got your attention? Yeah, with that? Uh, again, it, it, it kind of stemmed from martial arts. Um, I was always, as, as soon as I got into kind of back into martial arts in my 20s, I immediately kind of fell in love with studying Taoism and Buddhism. And, uh, you know, the study of Taoism brings you into longevity and immortality. And reishi mushroom comes up, you know, as kind of the prime Chinese herb uh, for immortality um, discussions. And, uh, I had actually done a few retreats in China where I stayed in a cave in the Zhongshang Mountains uh, meditating and only drinking water and uh, reishi. So as I got into Chinese medicine, I, I, I've told this story to my students, I, I got into Chinese medicine school and I was, I was like reishi everything, reishi, reishi, reishi. And then you take you know, your TCM herbal classes and you spend about three minutes on reishi and it kind of just goes by and you're like, wait, 
there, there's more. And, um, and it was kind of the same with all the medicinal mushrooms. Um, you know, they're a part of the pharmacopoeia, but you just don't get, you know, any real time to study them. And as you said, now you get out into practice and your patients are walking in the door like, hey, I was going to take lion's mane. Is that cool? Or, um, you know, my Whole Foods guy told me to take chaga. Is that, you know, appropriate for me? And I, in talking to other practitioners, they haven't really been able to find good information um, or even spend the time studying them. So I've just started to accumulate this information. Um, and I, I did a CEU class a few months ago to kind of, you know, basically give a, a download of all the stuff I've been collecting. And of course, I, I spent three years with Ron Teagarden at Dragon Herbs, and that kind of really upped my mushroom knowledge quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's an interesting character. Yes, he, is. Isn't he? <laughs> he has yeah. so much research, you know, that he's done and that he's accumulated. Um, it really it it kind of puts you on the front line of I would say like the consumer end of mushrooms, mm -hmm. and then you know the crossover of Chinese medicine. It's a, a really interesting blend. Yeah, I, I want to step back sure. for a moment. Meditating in a cave, drinking water, <laughs> and taking ling jur. Yeah. Can I ask what that was like for you? So I've I've done it a few times. I, for a while, I was trying to go every two years to this same place. Um, it's a cave, a, a set of caves carved uh, over the last eight hundred years. Um, some of them are Taoist. Uh, they have Taoist altars in them. Some of them are just hermit hermitage type caves, um, and. I had done a couple weekends, so just three to four days on on water and reishi, and those are good. I mean, you know, we a lot of people have done three, four day fasts, and and those were mm -hmm. good. Um, the the main one I did that was a little more intense. I did seven days on water and reishi up in these caves in like 2012, and that was the most intense one. I went through a lot of pain, um, a lot of really amazing meditations, um, really intense dreams. And, um, yeah, <laughs> what else can I say? It was very, very intense periods. Um, but the, the long one was, was the hardest. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering, I mean, I have a little experience with meditation myself. And of course, just spending some time sitting down and shutting up for like <laughs> days on end will profoundly alter your consciousness. Yes. So you've done some extended meditation with Rishi, without Rishi. Is there anything that you would say that the Rishi brings to it that you wouldn't get on your own? Definitely, definitely. So there's mm. um, there's there's a concept uh, um, that you, you've probably heard of called uh, Tzu Wang, where you're, it's called sitting in silence or sitting in oblivion. Um, but mm -hmm. what I've, I, I have learned, um, I, I learned kind of organically actually when, when you need to sit in silence for long periods of time, um, these thoughts are going to come to you, you know, and most meditation practice will just say, let it go, you know, let it fly away or come back to the breath or come back to counting or the mantra or whatever it is. And when you spend extended periods of time sitting you need kind of a stronger tool. And really when you're sitting in Swowong, you, you kind of need to destroy the thought. And I had come to that with 
practice, but recently I've been studying with Josh Painter and Jack Schaefer, and they describe so long as needing to obliterate thoughts. Oh it's, a, it's a much more uh, active, even aggressive process. And Well, the word obliterate, it's a little it's bit a little active. Bit active. <laughs> um, so um, it was really interesting to hear what I had practiced kind of, again, on my own, now sitting with teachers, there was a, there was a real term for it and there was a real teaching for that. And what I found is when I'm, when I do that and I've had, um, something like reishi mushroom, or I've put together some kind of formulation to calm the shen, that that process is faster, smoother, and just easier on the overall body, right? It, it helps mm -hmm. to, as the calm shen herbs does it, it just helps to let everything settle much quicker. Um, I had done right before I went to Chinese medicine school, I had done a pilgrimage in Japan, um, called the Shikoku pilgrimage. And you walk, uh, on the Island of Shikoku, you visit, uh, you follow this in this footsteps of a of a Buddhist saint and you visit 88 temples. And like many meditation, like retreats or something, I kind of went with this idea, like, I'm going to meditate every morning. I'll chant mantra when I walk every day and I'll do my prayers at the temple. But when I got out there, I found that my mind wouldn't stop racing with all of the baggage I had brought from home. So I, uh, I, I wouldn't know anything yeah, about that. So I, mm. I actually, I just let the mind run. I kind of said to the universe, like, all right, just, just give me everything. And for, for two weeks I walked and mm -hmm. the, my mind ran like a tape recorder and I must've looked like an insane person. Cause I was crying. I was angry. I was laughing. I, I had to have looked insane. But then after about 14 days, I, I woke up on the coast of this island and I started walking down this, this coastal road. And I realized I, I stopped in my footsteps and I realized my mind was quiet. There was mm -hmm. nothing, the tape recorder had run out. There was nothing left to play. Um, and then I could actually start to meditate in the morning. I, I, I was able to kind of, you know, have those real inner dialogues where you get insight into where you've been, what you're doing and where you're going. Um, and I did all of that. I actually did that trip without herbs because I was, I didn't want to carry stuff. So, uh, I find that Reishi gets me there quicker now that I know what that looks like. Now that I've seen that piece, um, when I'm mm -hmm. sitting at home in meditation and, Again, I'm taking reishi on a regular basis. I'm able to find that peace and quiet quicker without having to walk for two weeks straight and let the tape recorder play. Does that make sense? You know, it it really makes sense. And I think there's also something to, you know, taking a pilgrimage like that, putting yourself in that situation and really just letting the mind run. I don't know if it's letting the mind run or just taking the time out to notice what the mind is doing all the time, if you would just care to pause a moment and notice the incredible kerfuffle that's going on at every single moment between breaths. Oh yeah, breaths. just driving around LA. I mean, you're, you can't, you, you <laughs> can't stop. I mean, it's, it's a real exercise in patience. 
Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, and it takes time for, you know, us to literally come to our senses. Absolutely. No, there's no question. Um, and the more we sit, you know, the more we sit in silence, the closer we can get to that. And I do, I do yeah, recommend these, er, you know, the herbs like uh, uh, you know, the albizia flowers and, and reishi mushroom, of course, is a great one. Um, you know, I'll do, uh, Ron Teagarden uh, told me about Chai Hulongu Mulitang, um, how in some temples in China, they would give that formula to uh, new monks or, or new priests who were entering the temple for the first 120 days just to help them settle their shen, right, and bring everything down so that they could more easily leave behind the stresses of life outside the temple. So I actually do that now. The beginning of every year, I do about 120 days of chai hulongu muli tang. Of course, I pay attention to tongue and pulse, and if it's not appropriate, I won't do sure, it. But, sure. but that's kind of my beginning of the year. That's my reset, um, you know, based on what I'm going through in my life. But that's that's kind of my my beginning of the year formula. That's that's interesting. We're, we're going to get more into this here in just a second. I want to backtrack for just a moment. Um, there's a little rabbit hole that I want to go down, something that's of great curiosity to me. So I, I hope the listeners find this to be interesting too. You were talking a little bit ago about uh, Dallas studies, Buddhist studies, and immortality, the immortality practices. Sure. I'm really curious about this immortality stuff. I got I got some buddies in Taiwan that I've, you know, we we chew over this while we're you know hanging out doing whatever we're doing. One of my friends has made a, a very deep study of it, and the question I've got is is immortality really about living forever in this body we have, or is there some other thing that we're being pointed toward? Whew. <laughs> well, this is the, this is the discussion on mushrooms, and yeah. so you know, you just say the word mushroom, you can go all <laughs> kinds of places. Um, I think you will find a lot of answers depending on who you're talking to, the level of their Taoist, uh, I should say, scholarly Taoist study, um, and. Um, their kind of their lineage, of course, and what they're trying to accomplish. So for most Taoists, the idea of immortality uh, truly was about physical immortality, of course, but there was always the spiritual union, right? The going, the retreating from the 10,000 things backward towards unity. And once you've found unity, then the Shen you know, kind of is reabsorbed back into this universal Shen and, and the concept of, of immortality then begins to shift because then there's no more physical body. So I think scripturally, um, we're talking more about the soul and the reunification or the finding or the returning back to Tsuran, your natural the, the naturalness of self or the natural order of the universe. But when you look at, say, uh, Wydon, right, the, the making of elixir pills, they were concerned with a physical immortality. So again, I, I, I think, at least in my study so far, um, you know, you've got different schools. Uh, different, yeah. I mean, that makes sense that there would be different schools. And it, it's somehow reassuring 
you know, you've spent some time with this. It's reassuring to me to to hear that that there are people that were really focused on the physicality. There's also people that look at it from this sort of spiritual transformation perspective. Yeah, I mean, I I I don't think it's a completely different process, but I think yogic sciences would cons. You know, it's the closest thing that I can think of is that utilizing yoga right to to yoke to to find you know spiritual union again i think that's maybe mm-hmm. the closest mirror i could find um you know that uh, that people would begin to really understand hello everyone andrew sturman here i've been working with clients in chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in new york city my focus is beautiful simple delicious and health supportive home cooking Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory Practice it in your own kitchen and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah, one of the one of the discussion paths that I've had with this buddy from Taiwan is that it's living the absolute fullness of the days that you have. And so you could take someone, the example that he likes to use is someone like John Coltrane, right? Phenomenal musician. Didn't live that long, right? Had a bad heroin habit. And and yet when you look at the way that he allowed his spirit to unfold into the world, short life, fully lived. It's like if you can fully live your life, that's that that speaks to immortality. Absolutely. And you look at all the musicians who you know left us too soon: uh, Charlie Parker, uh, Coltrane, mm-hmm. Hendrix, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain. You know, the list is unfortunately mm-hmm. endless, but they did live, and and now their music and soul lives on. You know, for with us forever. Um, yeah, absolutely. That that's certainly a form of immortality. My my thought has always been um, try not to leave a footprint. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> so. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, here we are. I love Chinese medicine because it it'll take contradictions and put them together. On one hand, don't leave a footprint. On the other hand, maybe a legacy that helps others. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you're gonna leave footprints, at least make sure you haven't, um, you know destroyed the path or left a lot of damage that other people have to fix. Um, and that's also mm. part of Taoism, of course, you know, Taoism is essentially, you know, the ecology of the universe. Like how, how do we take care of ourselves in the microcosm? And then how does that transform in our daily lives and how we treat others and treat the environment around us? Um, again, in, in kind of my Taoist circles and my Taoist study group, um, you know, we talk about the precepts and how important the precepts are to our internal spiritual growth, but they're, they're, that internal spiritual growth is completely 
based on or at least relies on our spiritual uh, relationship outside of our own selves, you know, our spiritual relationship with the world around us. Um, and those two things cannot be removed in, in true Taoist studies. I, as we're having this conversation, I'm coming around to the thought that, oh, Taoist thought, Taoist practice, it's very, very fractal. You can go from the whole universe down to treating your patient in the clinic. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's all, mm -hmm. I mean, I think most of Chinese thought, if you go back to the I Ching, I mean, it, it has to be fractal from that point on, right? If you understand yin yang and then move that forward, the whole thing is, is fractal. Um, mm -hmm. All right, cool. Well, well, thank you for that little yeah, detour. Yeah, I, hope, uh, I hope I didn't insult any Taoist scholars. That, that's, that's at well, least my you know, understanding as, as I sit here today. <laughs> you know, you put six scholars in a room, you got eight opinions. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, we're so we're only that. as good as, uh, you know, our ability to hear the information, absorb the information, live the information, and then kind of, you know, spit it back out. So um, I'm always cautious, uh, you know, about how I relay those teachings that I received. I, I tell my students when I teach Tai Chi and I, I tell my students when they're teaching, remember, 50% of the people in the room will hear what you say. 50% of that 50% will remember it the next day. 50% of that 50% will actually understand what it was that you said. And 50% of that 50% will actually be able to regurgitate and give it back to you. So, you know, um, it's, it's always interesting to, to teach, but also to be a student and try to keep that in mind and how much am I absorbing and how much can I, can I live and, and really absorb, but then also, you know, relay back to people so that it can be helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, I suspect this is partly why also a teacher of ours might've said something 15 years ago and then you have an experience and you go, Oh, that's what she was. Oh talking yeah. About. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Very, very Super much so. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's, move on back here toward the mushrooms because I got tons of questions sure. about it. The the two that I am most familiar with, of course, are the Lingzhi, the Rishi, and the Dongchong Sha Cao, the Cordyceps, which I think is truly an amazingly transformative substance, especially for people with any kind of lung yep, issue. Absolutely. Love to get your thoughts on Cordyceps. Let's start it. Let's start in with oh, that. I, I mean my thoughts are listen to Steve's uh, interview on your podcast, of course, but yeah, I, because of the cost, right. You know, it, it's, it's such a rare thing, but what a rare herb that's using clay, but what most practitioners don't realize is the quality of cultured cordyceps now, right. Cordyceps military. Yes. And, um, Holy yeah, smokes. there's really good stuff out there and it's important. I spent a ton of time, um, in, in the CEU that I, that I taught about that because, we don't really, again, you go by cordyceps in your TCM herb class, it just flies by. And then, you know, probably because of the expanse and the rarity of use, and then you get to formulas and you never discuss it, right? Because it's just not used. So by the... Well, it's so rare in the, I mean, in the wild oh, form. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And in, a chi- in China, they say this. They say, those who eat it don't buy it. Those who buy it don't oh, eat absolutely. it. absolutely. I, I think Steve talked about, like, there are these stores in China that you never see anybody in. They're huge. You know, they're probably 50 by 100. And they're filled with cordyceps. And you never see anybody buy any. You never see anybody in the stores. But somehow, they're in every major city, you know, multiple versions of it. So it's a big gift item, um, huge gift item. Yeah. Well, you have lots of fakes. Yeah. Yeah, You have lots of fakes. But again, here we're really lucky because we do have access to culture cordyceps that the nutrient blueprint, when you look at, you know, HPLC and things like that, the nutrient blueprint is, is very similar, all, albeit at a, you know, the peaks are at lower levels. So you're getting the same physiological function. Um, but you might have to take more, or you might have to add assistant herbs to kind of beef up, beef up its properties. But because you now have it in an organic form, sorry, in a uh, not just organic but a cultivated form, um, you can now begin to add it into other formulas. Whereas in the past you couldn't. So you you know you might be adding it into uh, Renshin Baidusan or Gugantang or I don't know, maybe take Mahuang Tang and since we can't get Mahuang, add cordyceps too. Like you now have the option because it's actually affordable to start having fun with it in formulations. Yeah. You know, I, I've never really used it in formulation. I mean, the cordyceps, yeah. I've always used it more as a single herb because I'm really trying to shift something for someone. Again, usually respiratorily speaking, o- over the long term, I, what I found is that it takes months of regular ingestation of it. But after a few months, people's respiratory system can be fundamentally different. Oh, yeah. And if you're getting somebody on the back end, you know, of recovery, then you've especially got, you know, a really potent herb for them, you know, whatever it is, post-bronchial infection. um, That's kind of the the, probably the most placed I've used it as illness recovery. Mm -hmm. And then in Los Angeles, um, when I worked in the herb shop, we got a lot of people that were just into cordyceps as a workout booster. So assuming pulse and tongue were okay and everything was kind of, you know, in line with them taking it as a single herb, I might give it that way as well. It's great for endurance athletes. Yeah. I I had a lot of sprinters and, uh, biking guys who were really into cordyceps. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way I've described it to my patients, especially those who have an athletic bend, they want to, they want a slightly unfair advantage if they can get it (laughs) is I say, this is not going to give you energy like a cup of coffee, but you're going to find that you just go longer with what you're doing. That's exactly it. And and you don't tire. That's exactly it. If you're doing hills and things like that, um, cordyceps is probably the best herb that you could take for, you know, Mm -hmm. for stamina and, uh, for just the, the sheer power of the lungs. Yeah. Do you sometimes, you're saying we can mix it with other formulations. Are there any common combinations that you would use it with or that you have used it no, with? No, I'm pretty open. Um, if I can, so, so Dragon Herbs, again, who I worked for, they, ha- they had a bunch of different um, single variations, either in capsules or in tinctures. So I would, I would just layer that on top of formulas if I couldn't do a custom formula. Um, so it, it just depended on what was going on with the patient. Um, but no favorites, nothing that I gravitated towards all the time. It was more of this is their presentation. Now, kind of what mushroom do I want to layer on top of that? Ah, it's a lung thing. Maybe it's cordyceps. 
um, you know, it's a liver or a heart issue, maybe it's uh, lingjer. You know, I'm kind of looking at that sense. Gastrointestinal, I might go maybe chaga mushroom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Speaking, of, well, actually, I want to get to chaga in just a moment. Um, cause that it's such a pop, it's like the new popular it's everywhere. One. It's everywhere, which makes me go, what, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just like, it's just the new thing. It's going to be here for like a year. And then, you know, we get, we get the, the pretty new one, whatever is next. So I want to get into that in just sure. a second, but just to finish up with the Dong Chong shots, how the cordyceps, when, of course we can look in our materia medica and see what it says from your experience of using it, of ingesting it, of, of spending time with this substance, what would you say its main functions are? And, and for those out here listening who are thinking about maybe using it, this is what they could kind of take away from this in terms of how they would want to begin to experiment with it or use it in their clinic. Well, the, the, I think the important thing to remember, um, a lot of people are going to want to use it for lung, but it is a yang tonic. Right. So if you're prone to anxiety, agitation, irritability, you have to be really careful with it. Um, but then it does the weird thing where it tonifies lung yin. Right. So it's a really special herb in that sense. So we think of it as a kidney tonic, strengthening yang and jing. I've heard of people using it for adrenal support, but I've never seen any scientific literature that kind of backs that up. Right. What's happening hormonally? I, I've never seen literature that does it. It may be out there, but I just haven't found it. Um, so, you know, we're thinking of yang, we're thinking of the expression of energy, the stamina and endurance. And then we're also thinking of yin, um, where it nourishes the lung yin for deficiency. So again, increasing stamina and endurance. Um, that's, that's pretty much how I look at it. Just the, those normal Chinese medicine tropisms that we're all used to, you know, what channels does it go to? And that, that's kind of where I put it. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of a textbook guy when yeah, it comes to cordyceps. Yeah, I'm not going with cordyceps. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really going outside the box on that. Um, okay. Fair you know, enough. Yeah. Pretty straight ahead. Yeah. All right. Well, Changa, as I recall, is not in the Shenong, you know, Mr. Shenong's, you know, it's sure not in the Benson. Right? <laughs> ben you're, yeah. you're not going to find no, it there. No, no. You know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of a new thing. In fact, I don't even know if, if it's in China or if it's just here in North America. Uh, well, so, um, so the, the typical geography of it is in Siberia northern parts of China in, th in through Russia, of course. And then, of course, we see it here, uh, you know, in the Midwest, Wisconsin, places like that, wherever you have a heavy birch tree population. Um, it, if you read, if you just Google Chaga on the internet, you will see someone say, oh, this herb has been used in Chinese medicine for 4,000 years, and it's in Shennong's Ben Sao Gonglu, or sorry, Ben Sao Jing. And you're like, what? Let, let me go back, you know? So I open my, my Ben Sao Jing, and I'm like, no, Chaga's not there. So it's, it's again, one of those weird things where people want to take something that sounds, I don't know, esoteric and put it in Chinese. It's like we can get, we can get away with it if we say it was used in Chinese medicine. And really, you know, there's only two translations of Shenan's uh, Ben Sao Jing that are readily available. So nobody's really going to look for it. Um, but as Chinese medicine practitioners, 
you know, we have the capability to go back and look and say, ah, it actually is not in the Ben Saojing. Actually, not, not there. there at all. Um, you know, it was used early on in Russia um, and as a tea. They use it in certain Siberian tribes uh, to heal gastrointestinal disorders. They'll use it topically as well to heal wounds and things like that. But it's 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 not a four thousand year old Chinese mushroom, unfortunately. Well, it, often people will try to give credibility to something because it's been used for a long oh, yeah. time. Oh, yeah. You know, especially Chinese medicine, 2,000 years of evidence-based medicine. I mean, it's compelling. It sounds great. That's true. <laughs> it, But it sounds like this is in some ways more of like a Russian folk medicine Yeah, thing. absolutely. Yeah. You've got Siberian tribes that have been using it for hundreds of years, which is still impressive. That's that's amazing. That's, yeah, that's, that's a really great right. history right there. It doesn't have to kind of be absorbed into the lore of Chinese medicine to make it worthwhile. Yeah. So you say it's used externally for wounds. Yep. And then the, the big thing that they use it for, um, probably it's, it's most known tropism is as a gastrointestinal or stomach aid. Um, that's the number one place it's used. So for what kind, so for things like what we call irritable bowel or spleen deficiency yes. or acid reflux, I mean, what kinds of digestive issues are we looking at here? Say, say from our Chinese medicine sure. perspective, because our listeners would understand yeah. that. So less, less stomach chi rebellion. So I typically wouldn't use it in acid reflux if someone's having an attack, you know, and they, they need something to actually stop stomach chi rebellion. Um, but uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, anything that is torn apart the bowel wall. So it heals flesh in the gastrointestinal tract. Ah, so it heals wounds inside yes. and out. And that's a really cool thing. So again, somebody's having a, a, a true IBS attack with blood in the stool and things like that. You're, mm -hmm. you know, you're probably going to go Western pharmaceutical or look at different formulas, but post attack, you know, I would have no problem with chaga being either singly given or as part of a formula. Um, and then, you know, long-term, if someone is prone to different gastrointestinal disorders, chaga would probably be my number one mushroom for them. Okay. Leaky gut, you know, kind of a modern functional medicine idea. You know, we would look at that as a type of spleen deficiency, most likely. But this this idea of leaky gut, where you've got a gut that's torn apart, stuff's getting through that shouldn't get through, uh, would it be helpful oh, yeah. for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Again, back to that wound, wound healing. He yeah, the, the concept of wound healing is probably the perfect place that you would insert chaga, you know, in a, a digestive formula. Got it. Okay. What kind of dosages would you be looking it at? It depends on the extraction. And, and uh, Steve covered this so well in, in, his, uh, in his talk with you. It's really important to understand, you know, where – the mushroom came from and actually i don't think it was steve i think it was jeff oh sorry jeff jeff Chilton. yes sorry my yeah 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 all of a sudden i was, I was wait, just like wait a minute no, steve I was, I was just sorry. thinking for a moment there no. wait a minute yeah, sorry, yeah, jeff. yeah yeah um yeah so um so his his talk and, and it's kind of the talk that i give uh with practitioners um you know understanding where the mushroom came from mm -hmm. uh, whether it was cultivated or, or wild or wild cultivated um and absolutely understanding what part of the mushroom was used, uh -huh. right? That is a huge part of it. So 
um, I think you guys spoke about ratioing cordyceps and, and wanting the fruiting body. Um, yes. But when it comes to chaga and uh, um, fuling as well, poria, right, then we're actually dealing with the mycelium. So when you see chaga, um, if you've lived anywhere near birch trees, you've seen this before. It's a, it's a big hulking, it looks like a wound of a tree, right? It's a big hunking mass of almost like black cork-like material. That what you're seeing is actually the mycelium. Oh, that is that's not no. The that's body. actually the mycelium. You'll that is the mycelium, uh-huh. and it's the same thing with poria. The fruiting body for these two mushrooms is rarely seen. It pops up, and it's apparently it's so delicious to bugs and animals that the second it it shows itself, they devour it, and that's how the mushroom, the fungus is spread throughout the forest. So humans very rarely will ever see fruiting body of poria or chaga. So that hulking mass in this case actually is the mycelium. Uh-huh. And if you could find the fruiting body, that would probably be some powerful medicine. I guess I've, I, you know, I've, I've never seen anybody actually selling it. So I don't know that mm-hmm. it's, so don't I don't know, know if you know if it's available, um, which is a really interesting yeah. concept. Um, so yeah, you're in this case you're looking okay. at at mycelium, but in all mushrooms you're you're trying to make sure that the when you're using it clinically or for yourself you want to make sure you're getting the right piece, the right part of the mushroom. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say that there are not mycelium products out there that you know have some level of beta glucans, um, but you're in a lot of those cases you're getting more uh, starch. You know the the biomass that the mycelium was grown on, then you might actually be of the medicinal portion of the mushroom. Well, I have found in my experience with cordyceps, which I got turned on to it when I was in Taiwan, I used to have a connection, which unfortunately I lost over time, that had this cordyceps that was unbelievable. And for years, I tried to find it again, and I couldn't find it until I ran across the, the real mushroom stuff. Smells the same, tastes the same. You know, I put it in my body and I go, mm, yeah, that's that's the stuff. But it, but in the meantime, I've had everything from stuff that was like pretty good to stuff that actually made me sick because the amount of filler, whatever in the hell it was, first active ingredient was just, it just wasn't there. Yeah, when you think about like reishi mushroom, like um, – when you learn about it from the the Bensky text or the John Chen text, when we learn about it in Chinese medicine school, the dosage of it is is actually very specific, and it's like part of like state board exams. Like it's nine grams raw, or one point five to three grams in powder form. But one point five to three grams powdered what? Like wh- so? How are you? If you don't know what part of the mushroom is used and you know at least some approximation of how much filler is in there how are you dosing your patients so if you're thinking oh i want to give 1.5 grams to this patient but 40 or 50 percent of the powder that i'm giving them of reishi is actually uh rice right now you've got to start calculating in how much extra you know formula or powder are they going to have to take to make up for the amount of uh, filler that's in the product? So it, it, it even starts to shift your dosages. Absolutely. Well, and the, one of the bigger problems with that is, is the manufacturer teling you how much is rice and <laughs> how much is yeah. Yeah. ingredient? My sense is probably no, not. I, I would encourage all herbalists, I'll 
there'll probably be a hit squad out for me tonight, but I would encourage all herbalists to call their suppliers, you know, call their herb companies and just say, you know, how much, how much filler are you using typically? Um, you know, what filler is it? And, you know, are there any herbal products that you make that don't have filler? Um, you know, and, and the, the real commercial, the, again, the stuff you'd buy, you know, in the name brand stores is going to have more filler than the, the, the really good Chinese herb companies. Um, and that's why you've seen kind of those news stories of, you know, they've raided a certain national chain and they pulled all their cordyceps products off, for example, and they found like no trace of cordyceps or a tiny trace of cordyceps. They may have actually used a cordyceps mycelium, but it probably just has so much filler in there that they can't find adequate traces of it when they do the testing. Yeah. And we know this stuff is not homeopathic, so that's no, no good. It's, you need full, 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 need full, full dosage. Yeah. Okay. So all y'all is out there listening to this. Yeah. Do your homework on it. Yeah. And, and most of the good herb companies will send you COAs or their certificate of analysis or certificate of, of authenticity. Um, they'll, they'll send you that stuff and they'll let you know, Hey, here's, uh, you know, the region of China or in, in Chaga's case, the region of Siberia or Wisconsin that it was purchased from. Uh, they'll test it for heavy mesocides, heavy metals, pesticides, and contaminants. Um, and, you know, they should give you, if it's, if it's a powdered extract, they'll tell you, was it water or alcohol or fermented extract? Uh, yeah, this is a great question. What are the best ways to extract this uh, stuff? You know, some, some, <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, we're up in a can of worms here. You know, some people do it in alcohol. Some say alcohol is really good. Some say water's better. What what's your sense, or does it vary by the different kind of mushroom? It varies by the mushroom, and it varies by the constituent that you want to pull out. So, if you want the full body, complete extract for most mushrooms, you're going to look at a water and alcohol extract. That's where you're going to get all the triterpenoids and the beta glucans. Um, what's interesting is they found that, like in Poria and Fuling. A lot of the diuretic compounds, uh, the, the, I should say the, the compounds that make it more of a diuretic are the triterpenoids, um, but that's traditionally better extracted via alcohol. So here we use poria, usually in a water extract, of course, but its mm -hmm. real diuretic power comes out when you do it in an alcohol extract. But you'll, I don't think anybody on the market has an alcohol extract of poria. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective 
herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, and it raises the question too, are we using the fooling as a diuretic or are we using other aspects of it that strengthen the body in such a way that the body just takes care of water metabolism? Absolutely. And if you really wanted to use it as a diuretic, could you do an alcohol extract, right, and actually get a, a more pronounced effect? It's a good question. All right, you doctoral <laughs> students out there, you might want to – there's a yeah, project there's for you. a huge you. project. That would be an amazing study. Um, and nobody's ever done – you You can find on PubMed like very individual studies where somebody's compared a water and alcohol extract. Um, they may have even done um, some of the mushrooms that, that we've spoken about. But nobody's – I haven't seen like a broad systematic review um, or a meta-analysis of all the studies done that show really which mushroom, which extraction method, and what constituents are – you know the result of that. No, I haven't seen a great meta-analysis that really lays all that out for the medicinal mushrooms um, that we generally use. So that would, that's another another doctoral program uh, dissertation. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, and I suspect it's going to be doctoral students that are involved in Chinese medicine that would do this work because you're not really going to find pharmaceutical companies doing it. No, because this. they can't, you know, if they're their hook in all of this, of course, is finding an extraction method that they can patent, right? They can't patent the herb. They can't patent the mechanism of the herb. But if they can patent the extraction method, and that's what we see early on with turkey tail, with Coriolis versicolor. Um, early in the 60s, the Japanese developed an extraction, extraction method of mycelium for PSK, polysaccharide K, and that became Crestin, the cancer drug. And then the Chinese followed up, I think, in the early 80s with PSP, um, and that's also an approved cancer drug. But what they've patented are the extraction methods, not the herb itself or the, even the mechanism of that extraction. So in any of these cases, when you're looking for pharmaceutical company research, they're probably looking at some extraction method that they were able to patent um, and therefore make a drug out of it and sell. Um, right. Cause they're looking to sell a drug, yeah. not, not the entire substance in a hopefully very bioavailable. Yeah. Form. And that, that's what makes clinical trials of herbs, you know, very difficult. Again, going back to PubMed, you start looking, just take any Chinese herb that you're interested in and you'll probably pull up about 75% of the studies will be single constituent extracts where one constituent of the herb has been extracted. And then the whole herb mm -hmm. studies will be a much smaller portion. So with goji, it's LBP40. Cordyceps, it might be cordycepin. Uh, Coriolis is PSK and PSP. Um, so that's how they want to study it. But as Chinese medicine practitioners, we're much more interested in whole herb extracts. Exactly. Let's jump into the turkey tail for a moment because that that seems to have some really powerful effects for cancer. It does. It does. And uh, it's it was actually my um, capstone, my dissertation project for uh, my five branches capstone, my doctoral 
degree. There. All right. So you were one of those doctoral students that picked up the challenge of yeah, this. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also now the dean of the doctoral program at Yosan. So I'm very much interested in doctoral programs and doctoral program research. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's my whole life at this point. Awesome. Tell us more about the turkey tail. So again, like a very, you know, fairly rarely used mushroom for most of us. Um, Yunjur, it is used uh, in Chinese medicine, but we don't seem to talk about it too much, right? It's it's kind of like, eh, it's this thing that's out there. Maybe you learned it a little bit um, in your TCM herbal classes, but it doesn't seem to gain or it doesn't seem to have any traction in the Chinese medicine world. But when you talk to the people kind of in the natural products world, they're really hot on turkey tail. Um, for us, it's a, a liver, spleen, and lung tonic. Um, and it does kind of what we'd expect of a spleen tonic, right? It transforms damp. Um, it's really good for treating any kind of chronic damp that may result in, say, like liver disease, like cirrhosis, um, great for things like bronchitis, so phlegm collecting in, in the bronchial tubes, uh, but also has a really, it, does, it still has a Shen component. It's kind of the, you know, for us, it's probably the lesser of the mushrooms that have a Shen component, but it still has a Shen component. Um, and I, I actually had very little interest in turkey tail. I was really interested in reishi, 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 just because of all my use. Yeah. Which, which, which we're going to get yeah. to here in a moment. Um, we're going to get there. But, but I, uh, I got into my, so I'm, I'm also um, in a PhD program at Zhejiang University in, in Hangzhou. And I went there with the intention of doing like new reishi research. And when I sat with my doctoral advisor, she was like, look, you know, reishi is really cool and there's lots of studies, but there's probably too many studies and I'll support you in doing reishi work. But, you know, there's just, it's going to be really hard to publish. And if you want to move something into clinical trial later, it's, you're going to be, you know, fighting for a lot of grant money. So she's like, I would suggest taking like revisiting medicinal mushrooms and seeing if there's something else that's interesting to you. And that's when I kind of came around to Coriolis as, uh, you know, my dissertation topic. And I found so much amazing information, um, going back to that, that early Chinese and Japanese extractions of PSK and PSP and the fact that they're used as licensed, uh, uh, licensed drugs for cancer therapy, um, kind of amazed me. I was kind of blown away by that. And the fact that it gets so little press here in the U S, um, but two studies really like knocked me out. Um, one was a decoction of Yunjur Danshen, um, and they found that it reduced, uh, it increased quality of life scores in post-operative breast cancer patients. So just two herbs in the formula, it elevated uh, CD4 T cells um, with B lymphocytes, and they um, there's a ratio for T cells called CD4 and CD8, and we use that ratio as a measure of prognosis. So you might in HIV patients or in cancer patients, if that ratio is off, um, it, it can kind of tell us that the, maybe the prognosis is not good. But just an oral extraction of uh, Yunjur Danch, or sorry, oral decoction, oral, ex <laughs> my words have gone away. Uh, a decoction of Yunjur Danchen ad, uh, administered orally for six months restored the CD4 CD8 ratio. So it's a really good indicator of post-operative and post-chemo and radiation therapy for breast cancer patients. So that was the first study I read. And there were like three studies of this decoction, and then it disappears. You never see research on it again. 
And then the other one that really blew me away, um, there was a researcher, I think the name was Donatini. Um, they took Coriolis and Reishi, so my, my two favorite mushrooms, uh, and they did a decoction of the two and, again, used oral administration on patients who had been confirmed with HPV-16 and HPV-18, which are the two really high-risk HPV viruses that cause cancer. Um, and in two months, they had a clearance of 88% utilizing those two herbs. So I, I read that and I was like, oh my God, like how does everybody not know this? Um, this so, you know, the mushroom to me, um, the, re the research is out there for all mushrooms, but Coriolis like really then started to kind of like, you know, dig into my soul a little bit. It was like, wait a second, I, I need to really dig into this. So my capstone was just a systematic review of Coriolis um, for the five branches DOM, but I'm looking for my PhD program. I'm looking at, you know, can I do either a pilot study or a small scale clinical trial um, utilizing turkey tail, again, either in a formulation or as a single herb. And that's, that's kind of what I want to do, but I want to do a whole herb. I don't want to do a constituent study. I want to do, right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a whole herb. That's great. That's great. I mean, you're, you're staying so true to the principles of the medicine oh, I'm trying. when you do yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if we start yeah. getting into constituents, you know, we miss, we, we miss the aspects of Chinese medicine that are most important. I, I, I tell my students all the time, like, um, take, take all your ingredients for your favorite pie or cake and add them in the bowl and, and cook the cake. Right. And, and you take that out and you eat it and, and it's amazing. Now take all those same ingredients and put them in 12 separate bowls, cook them individually, pull them out of the oven, put it all back in a bowl and see if it tastes the same. And of course it doesn't. Right. So this idea that we can pull the constituent out of an herb and have it have the same effect uh, you know, it misses all the, all the chemistry, all the chemistry is gone. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of adamant about, you know, whole herb extracts. I do give, like I, I have given like Goji LBP 40. Um, you know, if I, if I think there's something that really I want to zero in on this constituent and I, I think it could be part of a formula and somebody makes that constituent, I've done it, but it's not the way that I would choose to prescribe Chinese herbs. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Uh, I want to finish up here for a moment with turkey tail. And, uh, and, and I want to jump into lion's mane for a moment. And, and then I want to come back to Rishi because I know it's your favorite. Save the best for last. <laughs> um, unless we need a whole extra hour to do just oh, Rishi, we'll see. I think people would, I, think <laughs> I, I would do it, but I think people would get really bored. <laughs> I, you know, I, I doubt that. You know, I mean, um, I, I can be the judge of that. Sure, I'm the that's podcast host. All right. So let's just finish up with turkey tail here. It sounds like it can be really helpful for people, especially with Danshan, right? That And that totally makes sense, right? You just have to be a basic Chinese herbalist to get the, the incredible, helpful, blood invigorating power of Danshan. You put that with something that's anti-cancer and I could see that being really, really useful, especially post-surgery or post-radiation. Yeah. And it's interesting because most people would think of as a, a blood mover, right? And invigorate blood herb as kind of not appropriate for cancer, right? Or, or even post-cancer. Well, I, I, I think you would get practitioners that would be like, oh, I don't want to move blood in cancer. And it's like, well, there's a point where you might. Ex yes. Yeah. Um, and again, that's, I think, a slightly different discussion, but still, 
uh, you know, there's a place for making sure that the physiology is moving properly. Yes, absolutely. Right? Because if it's not moving properly, then you're going to get stagnation. You, of course, you don't want to drag things from one place to another in an inappropriate way. Yeah, that's that's just a great discussion for herbalists, oh, yeah. but we're not going to go there at this <laughs> yeah. moment. So it's useful for post-operation, those kinds of things. What about something like, say, the slow-growing prostate cancers, right? I mean, there's even a discussion these days that the slow-growing prostate cancers, even using the word cancer, isn't that helpful because it, it's a little bit misleading. Guys may have it for decades, never die of it. They're going to die of something else. Would would this be useful in a case like that? Um there are studies showing that it can suppress uh, prostate tumor development, but I think it's only been done in, in mice and rat models. I don't think anyone's done it in uh, a human study, but it has definitely been shown to, to, to suppress prostate tumors in mice. So again, you know, there, I would say that we're in a tricky position when it comes to Chinese herbs and because um, we are not allowed to treat cancer, right? So when somebody comes to us for help uh, and they're dealing with cancer, we're everything that we do has to support the Western model, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful with that. And and, and of course, you know, I never tell my patients or, or never tell you know anybody that I'm treating cancer. I'm always looking at supporting their treatment decisions that they've made with their oncologists. So whatever, if somebody wants to go the full chemo route, I'm here to support whatever the side effects are of their chemotherapy. And if they choose not to do chemo or radiation, I'll support whatever that pattern is in front of me at, you know, at that given moment. So when it comes to adding mushrooms in these cases, uh, I'll actually speak with the oncologist if I can and say, hey, here's here's what I'm thinking, right? Here's, I want to give, say, turkey tail, you know, for this patient who has prostate cancer. And at least let me show you that there are no studies saying that it interferes with the treatment protocol that you've decided on. And in most cases with the Chinese mushrooms, what we find is they make chemotherapy more effective, so when I start to show them that, then they, you know, will back down kind of, okay, maybe the mushrooms are okay. And if they're still anti it, I say, well, what if I just do like shiitake, maitake, lion's mane as dietary mushrooms? And they're, then they're totally fine. Then there's, there's no issues. So we get a little wrapped up both in the concept of like, you know, Chinese herbs in quotes, you know, are they what they say they are? Are they dangerous? Um, does this practitioner know what they're doing? And then the second part of it is, will it interfere with my treatment protocol? Um, and in, in most cases, you'll get a lot of doctors afraid of one of those two things. And you just have to guide them towards like, look, this is a safe company. Here's my COA. Here's a study that says the chemo is more effective with it, or at least that it doesn't interfere. And then you kind of open those doors for them. And I've had a lot of oncologists totally cool with um, both turkey tail, chaga, uh, and reishi. Those three are, the, are kind of the three. And then if I need to go dietary, I'm looking at shiitake, maitake. That's, that's kind of you know yeah. the way I go. Well, I suspect it's really helpful that you're speaking their language to them, the language of studies, the language of research. You know, if it's in the, if there's something in the literature that they consider reliable, then you can have that conversation. Yes. Whereas if you say, well, you know, the Bun Cao Jing says, gonna, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not like, real helpful you, to them. You, 
you just effectively ended the conversation. Yeah. But I, but I would yeah. say, and I, I, I say this a lot now that, you know, un, for us as practitioners, understanding both the science and the classic text is it's everything because that's where you start to see the overlap. And, uh, you know, you've, you've translated the Huang Huang text. So, you know, the more you understand Chinese language, the more you understand how much the overlap is actually occurring between the concepts, right? If you have a very superficial understanding of Chinese language, it all just sounds esoteric and woo-woo, ha-ha, and there's no science to it. And I just need to throw it away and just read PubMed. But the more you dig into the classics, the more you dig into the Ben Sao Jing and the Ben Sao Gong Mu, and then, of course, moving forward, Shang Han Lun Wenbing, you start to see how the concepts overlap. And then you can start to have really, actually, very deep conversations with Western medicine practitioners without abandoning the Chinese medicine portion of it. Right, because we can really talk physiology in that yeah, case. Yeah, no, and they, they yeah. then they then they get excited. Is they, you know, most Western doctors are really going to turn off when you start saying Chinese medicine and acupuncture. But as soon as you start to talk their language, they they kind of get really excited for you. Yeah, well, who wouldn't? I mean, anytime we're talking to anybody and we're speaking their language, so to speak, it's hard not to be excited. So there's a there's a uh, bit of a discussion in the podcast world about the ideal length of a podcast. Right. We're already a little over the time that a geological podcast is. And but there's this idea in the podcast where what you know your podcast should be a certain length. How long should it be? And the answer basically comes to as long as you're absolutely fascinating. So yeah, that's a, I think that's a I'm on for making this go a little bit longer. I hope I, and I suspect the listeners are along um, with this on this. And if they're not, they can go listen to uh, Joe Rogan or, or something. Or they can come back tomorrow. <laughs> or they can come back. That's the cool thing about a podcast, yeah. right? Oh, I, I'll just turn it no, off and come back where I was. Brilliant. It's fun. So I, I'm going to leave Turkey Tail behind for a moment, even though I, I, we could give this its own whole podcast too. Lion's Mane. What's up with this? And and the big the big story that I keep hearing is cognition. What's going on here? Yeah. So there, you know, again, it's it's one of these mushrooms. Um, so many mushrooms. I should say, like when I worked in the herb shop, you know, I really went in with this again that reishi, 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 cordyceps a little bit, but you know, all these people were coming in. They're like, hey, do you have lion's mane? Do you have shiitake? Do you have maitake? And I was kind of like, uh, I need to go find information about this because we just. I don't know about most people's school, but I don't think many schools even talk about lion's mane. Um, no, I didn't even hear about it until three years yeah, ago. So I started like kind of drawing in all this information. And the interesting thing that I found is that it was used in um, Chinese medicine. It was used um, in dietary nutritional concepts uh, in early China, like 3000 years ago. So Shang dynasty. Um, and there were all these sayings and I'm sorry, my Chinese isn't good enough. So, but they were basically like eat more monkey mushrooms and you'll be rejuvenated. Um, <laughs> monkey, mushrooms. monkey mushrooms. Cause so the, the lion's mane looks like the, you know, the head of a monkey basically. Um, and there was a dish and I, I don't know too much about this. There's probably a great Chinese historian that could give a whole lecture on this, but there was, there was like when you had in ancient China 2000 years ago, when you had someone very famous come to you, you had a dinner with monkey head, uh, mushroom, shark's fin, bear's paw, mm -hmm. and bird's nest. So amongst right. – Yeah, 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 yeah. So amongst those four you know, famous dishes, lion's mane was one of them. 
Um, yeah, so pretty cool that it had, it it actually, so we can take this mushroom that everybody wants to say had a Chinese history and it actually does. Um, so it's kind of nice that it's still part of our medicine. Um, you know, it's, it's where it grows. It is, you know, in China, Hunan, Hebei, places like that, Shanxi, I think up in inner Mongolia, Sichuan. So it's, it's got a pretty broad, um, pretty broad natural growth pattern across China. In this case, uh, fruiting body, which is also really important. You know, you're not eating the mycelium here. You're, you're actually eating the fruiting body. Um, and it's again, a spleen and stomach tonic and nourishes the heart. And, uh, it actually is supposed to go to all five zong. So yeah. Um, it's spleen part is maybe what gives us some indication that it's going to have an effect on the mind because it reduces dizziness, right? It uh, reduces insomnia and fatigue, um, especially when they're associated with like tea and blood deficiency. So that gives us some idea of why the brain, right? When you think of spleen deficiency and confusion and fatigue, what happens to the brain in say like student syndromes, Gui Pitong type syndromes, right? That mm-hmm. gives us some idea of why it's affecting the brain. And then they say it also nourishes the heart. So there's kind of that heart mind um, yep, connection, but, um, they've, they've used it for everything in studies. Uh, the people's pharmacopoeia, you know, which is like the standard Chinese pharmacopoeia, um, that the Chinese government endorses uses it to treat stomach disorders, um, ulcers, gastritis. Um, and they even were experimenting, uh, with it against SARS and the avian flu. Um, when that was a thing, what was that? 2005 ish. Um, 2002. 2002. Okay. Yeah, I was. I, I got the the joy of being in Beijing when that. Oh, was Oh, that's fun. <laughs> uh, very short story. I got on a bus in Nanjing. This is after the avian flu, but I got on a bus in Nanjing in like 2009, and this guy got on uh, the next stop with like a four foot stack of bird cages filled like squeezed in with like doves and pigeons and 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 all i had was avian flu memories in my head but we survived um so they were so the chinese (laughs) government was experimenting with it for sars and avian flu and in japan they actually uh were looking at it for maybe uh clearing out MRSA. so super antiviral antibacterial you know the studies that have gone on in the last 10 years but they do know or at least uh, the studies show that it induces a uh, nerve growth factor and that's what relates uh, relates to the regeneration of brain nerve cells and may actually prevent and and be a possible treatment for alzheimer's and parkinsons powerful stuff yeah it's intense yeah it's it and well and gives us some hope you know i think about these substances that have been used for thousands of years all through China, different dynasties, different ways of looking at things. And it's so interesting to me that here in our modern world, we've got these new tools for really looking into how these things work with our human physiology. And we've got these ways of teasing these substances apart so that we can see you know, their active ingredients, as well as keeping in mind, you know, like you were talking about baking that blueberry pie or that chocolate cake, where you want to keep the whole thing together because that's going to bring something that you won't get when you're just doing 
that single extract. Yeah, and you can still look, you can still be interested, you know, in the polysaccharides. There's there's four, maybe half a dozen polysaccharides in lion's mane that people have studied, but a lot of the studies are still actually in lion's mane case going on either in combinations of those polysaccharides or whole herb extracts. Um, there was one study with lion's mane where they were giving the extraction uh, a week before surgery, so like a preoperative herbal regimen and then post-operative and it actually improves the outcome of the surgery and it even improves the outcome of chemo and radiation so you know really cool studies are happening and, and they're using lion's mane for tons of different cancers um connective tissue vascular uh breast colon lung i mean it's it's all over so um really good studies for it these studies are coming from where? Um, some are American, some are European, um, some are Chinese, a uh, lot of Japanese studies on mushrooms. So they're kind of all over the world. All over yeah. the world. That that gives it some extra credibility, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's the, a lot of the turkey, I should say a lot, the, a, a, a portion of the turkey tail studies were coming out of Poland. Um, so I, I actually uh, had to translate a bit of those to figure out what was going on and ask some Polish friends to help me with the translation. Cause I'm like, I think this is what's happening. And Google tells me it's this and Polish is a really complicated language. So I, I did translate a couple of those for my capstone. Cause I liked, uh, the English abstract was available and I was like, Oh, this is good information, but I need access to this. Let me figure out what's going on. Yeah. Cool. Um, I would love to dig into Rishi, but you know what? I would, what I'd really like to do is invite you back for a part two and we can just get all lovey on the reshape and, 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 and really dig into it. I then. would love it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to give it its due. It's such a important medicinal. It's, it's so famous, you know, I mean, throughout temples and artwork for thousands of years, you see images of the reshape. Yeah, mushroom. absolutely. I mean, it's been used like you said, thousands of years in temples and everything. So yeah, it's it's a really important mushroom to to discuss and is not used enough in Chinese medicine clinics because people, they kind of forget about it. All right. Well, we're going to dig into that in a part two. So all y'all that, that want to hear it, uh, it'll be coming up sometime soon. Before we sign off for today, Robert, is there any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners here about the use of these mushrooms in the medicine that we practice? Woo. <laughs> um, Small question. I, I would say, you know, you can, for, for Chinese medicine practitioners to, to really understand the medicinal mushrooms, it's important to go back to the classics, right? Look at the three levels. I think uh, Andrew Nugent had talked about the three levels in the in the Ben Sao Jing. Um, look at where those medicinal mushrooms fall in the Ben Sao Jing and how they were used classically. And then you can begin to look at the tropism, right? The channels and the organs that they go to. And then you can kind of begin to look at Western diagnosis and see how you might be guided to use a particular mushroom in a formula or even, you know, singly. Um, that's how I, what's what I learned from Ron Teagarden. And, and it's, it's kind of how I've applied mushrooms in my clinical practice. That, and that's, that's kind of where the idea of chaga as an intestinal mushroom came from. Um, so once you want to, but you, you have to understand that classical text you have to understand that classical monograph that everything else we've got is built on um and once you go there then bensky really starts to make sense and then the john chen book starts to make sense and then you can like your knowledge will then go 
you know, you'll surpass where you are now very quickly once you really understand that that simple paragraph or two that was in the Ben Sao Jing. That, that sounds like really good advice. Just build that foundation of how we understand this stuff from our Chinese medicine point of view. Really, really get it. And then we can see how it actually unfolds into some of the conventional medicine perspectives. That's perfect. You said it way better than I did. No, nah, <laughs> no, you did. You, just, you put the idea in my mind. Robert, thank you so much for your time no, today. You. And I look forward to uh, digging into the reshoot this with you. This is really great. I really appreciate it. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.